Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, Conservative Party leadership hopeful Jean Charest will find out how the Ontario wine industry is dealing with the impact of extreme climate with the president of the Wine Growers of Ontario, Aaron Dobbin. Please just let the Pinot be okay. What lies ahead for the Hamilton Tiger Cats? And an investigative story in the Star pulls back the curtain on Unifor in the wake of allegations against high-profile former leader Jerry Dias. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, actually, it was just a couple of days ago, but so much has happened, it seems like longer. Conservative leadership hopeful Jean Charest released his plan for Indigenous peoples, part of his push to take over the helm of that party. He's joining us now on the line. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Shona, it's a pleasure to join you. Uh, one of the first statements in your policy plan is that reconciliation starts with an honest recognition of the past and a renewed commitment to rebuilding the Indigenous Crown relationship going forward. Why would First Nations trust anything a government has to say at this point? Well, you're, you're right. Uh, the proof will be in the pudding and, and what we will do. What we know now from the Trudeau government is that there's been very high expectations that have not been met and uh, a lot of virtue signaling. A good example of that is the commitment to deal with the uh, clean water, potable water, which actually that was, wasn't delivered on, as incredible as that may sound. My view is that we need to have a frank and open relationship. I, would, I think that where we need to start is building the economic base of our Indigenous communities, and that's what I would focus on in the relationship. Well, I'm glad you brought up the issue of clean water. It was uh, something that we focused on earlier this week on this program. Uh, we were speaking with uh, one of the members of the Dreamcatcher Foundation, and part of what they are hoping to accomplish is clean water for all. There are currently 77 boil water advisories in Ontario. There are two advisories that simply say, do not consume. What is your plan for that? Well, I've dealt with infrastructure, uh, Shona. I that what I did for 10 years and and the reputation I have is of someone who gets these things done and if uh, if we're going to do, do it we're going to do it in the first mandate of my government we'll sit down with the communities we'll lay out the plan and we'll execute we'll we'll actually build the infrastructure required to have clean potable water and uh, I, uh, I I know in certain instances it may be a challenge but you know what we need to be the resources and the will to do it so that's that's why we'll proceed We'll do it with the communities. Another section of your platform deals with land claims settlement. That is a big issue in this area. Uh, several actions against developments from Six Nations members moving on to development sites, in at least three cases that come to my mind, to the Haudenosaunee chiefs declaring a development moratorium across the entire Haldeman Tract, and that includes places like Kitchener, Cambridge, Paris, Brantford, Caledonia, all the way down to Port Maitland. What is your plan to deal with land claims? Well, we want to give treaty signatories the right to opt into a process of modernizing their treaties with the Crown, and with a goal of moving all those who wish to modernize the treaties to move to a single federal transfer and to, and to have significantly more control over their own affairs. In the end, that's what we're seeking to do. I mean, what is the outcome of these negotiations? Well, that's what we want is for the communities to have ultimately more control over their day-to-day affairs. 
We're on the line with uh, Jean Charest, who's running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. Um, uh, we've heard about a third leadership debate that is slated to happen next month. You are in favor of it happening. A date and location has yet to come. Um, and you've pushed the party uh, to make sure that this happens. Well, it's called democracy. The members of the party now have their ballots in hand. Most of them uh, and those listening to us today would have their ballots in hand, and I would hope that they would uh, offer their vote and put in their vote as rapidly as possible so that we are able to move the process forward. And part of democracy is debates and being accountable to the members of the party. The party, Shona, ran a poll and asked members whether they wanted a third debate. The answer overwhelmingly was yes. I think 65% said yes. And I'm, I'm going to be there, and I will answer questions, and I'll be accountable for the policies that I'm proposing. I regret that Mr. Fadiev won't be there. In fact, another media this morning had a headline that sort of encapsulized Mr. Fadiev's position. You know, his nickname is Skippy. Well, they said, you know, Skippy is skipping another debate. And he won't stand on the same stage as me, I guess. I don't know what he's afraid of or what it is. He does. Maybe he doesn't want to talk about his policies for cryptocurrency or or the Bank of Canada, or uh, or supporting an illegal blockade in Ottawa. Maybe these are the things that he just doesn't want to talk about. But I'm ready to talk about all the issues and questions that will be asked and to be accountable to the members. And by the way, to those who are members now and listening to us, now's the time to vote, and please put my name in as your first choice. Now's the time to have a real adult in the room as we seek to replace the Trudeau government. Well, if Mr. Poiliev says no to the debate and doesn't show, is there any point in it still happening? Well, there are other candidates. Roman Baber will be there. Uh, Scott Aitchison will be there. And I assume Leslie Lewis will all be there. Mr. Mr. Poiliev, and interestingly enough, Shona, he's going to be fined by the party because you have to put in sort of a bond if you don't act show up at the party event. So Mr. Poiliev is going to use the you know donations that uh, people have given him to buy himself out of the debate. He's going to buy, he's going to pay not to participate in the debate, $50,000 of hard-earned donations of individual people in Hamilton who gave him money. He's going to take that money to pay the party not to participate in the debate. So, you know, you can, you can draw your own judgment on that kind of behavior. Well, it seems like a, a leadership contest is not the same as an open election. Uh, at least in terms of, um, you know, who is still up for grabs, who might be the undecided. At least it's not the same base there. But there may be more undecided this time around because Patrick Brown um, is no longer in the race. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, more of a reason for us to have a debate, to offer the members an opportunity to to listen to the candidates, what we're saying, what we're what our policies are. I run a debate both on the ground level, but also at, in, in terms of policy. As you know, from First Nations, as we've just talked about, or whether it's defense or whether it's resources, all those things, because the members of the party deserve to know what they're going to be voting for. I mean, it's called democracy. It's that simple. Now Patrick Brown being out of the race means that more of a reason for those who may were leaning in his direction to listen to the candidates. And by the way, you know, overwhelmingly, the Patrick Brown organizers and supporters are coming over to our campaign, Shona. So we're very, that gives us a great deal of confidence in the outcome of this race. Um, what are some of the points that you want to make in that debate? That as a, a leader of this party, I will be able to unite the caucus, unite the party. And the difference between me and Mr. Poitier boils down to this. 
I can win a national majority government that will unite the, uh, the country. Mr. Poliev, given everything that he's done now in this leadership race, the positions he's taken on things like Bitcoin or, uh, or, the, uh, or whether it's the blockade or other issues, uh, is not going to be able to win a government. And conservatives are tired of losing. They're tired of giving away elections to the liberals. We want to replace the, if you want to replace the Trudeau liberals, I'm the one who will be able to do that. And so that's, that's the choice that we have. Well, it's, it's interesting you're saying that. I mean, on one hand, a leadership campaign is about what your platforms are, uh, what you want the party to see, do, how you want the party to proceed. But the other thing is winning an election. And there have been two cycles now where you had two different candidates running as uh, the Conservative Party leader. Um, there were huge scandals that were faced uh, by the, the Trudeau government that really dropped into the lap of the Conservatives and failed to complete. And, you know, you just didn't win. And I was shocked by that. Well, and so uh, Canadians and Conservatives were extremely disappointed. But who are the people who lost that campaign? I mean, you know, the main organizer of Pierre Poitiers is named Jenny Byrne. She is the person who proposed in 2015 this embarrassing policy of a hotline to denounce immigrants. I mean... And we, it still hangs on us today. I mean, in 2021, when our candidates were knocking on doors in the GTA, they were being told by people at the door that conservatives were racist because of the Pierre Polyev's organization and Obain organizer at the time. And, and, and that's what he's offering again. That is not going to get us elected. We need a leader who has the ability to connect in the GTA, including the Hamilton area. We have 53 seats out of four in the GTA. That says everything you need to know about the future of the party. And if there's one leader who's able to elect people in the GTA, I will do that. I've done that. I've won three consecutive campaigns as premier and have led the Federalist forces in this country. So that's what the, that's what the issue is in this campaign. That's what the choice is. Uh, Mr. Charest, thank you so much for spending time with us. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Real pleasure. And good luck in Bye-bye. your campaign, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Jean Charest, running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. If you're interested in finding out more about what his stand is, uh, not only on the Indigenous platform that he released two days ago, but uh, the other campaign platforms that he has, you can always check out his website. The Conservative Party of Canada leadership will be known on September the 10th, uh, and voting is underway right now. And, uh, of course, there will be that third debate It'll be interesting to see who shows up at various podiums for that. But that third debate is coming up next month. Date and location to come. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the very best things about living in southern and southwestern Ontario is being in the midst of so many great wine regions. Niagara and Lake Erie North Shore, while both regions have great growing opportunities, wine growing in this part of Canada can come with some risks. And last winter, that was the case. A particularly bitter cold night in January had an impact. Uh, It was about minus 26 degrees overnight on January the 15th, and it did do some crop damage. Here to talk more about this is Aaron Dobbin, president of the Wine Growers of Ontario. My dream job. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Great to be here. Please say the Pinot's okay. Uh, yeah, it's so the the damage that has been done is uh, 
it 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 looks like it's tending to be very regionally uh, specific. So there'll be there'll be Pinot that is just fine, and then there'll be Pinot that's been hit hard. Um, the Grape Growers of Ontario survey that was out recently says that there was some crop damage, as you mentioned. Um, when you say it was pretty isolated, in Niagara, there are different benches. There's St. David's, Grimsby. Um, and was it very localized just within a certain microclimate? Uh, it, it was even, in some instances, it was even more micro than that. Um, you could have a field where if there was a low-lying area, uh, that cold snap would have sat in the, in the, in the dips. And you, so you, I know of a few spots where um, row by row, it, the damage could be different. Really? That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, was this damage in Niagara or did it happen elsewhere? Uh, it looks like it's being felt pretty much through Niagara. Um, and, but it's, it's, it's very specific to, um, specific fields. So you could have a neighbor who is fine and you've been hit hard. Um, or you could have planted, uh, say Vidal or Riesling, uh, beside, uh, Merlot. And your Merlot could have been hit hard, and your Riesling or your Vidal could be fine. So, so it's it's very very uh, it's it's been a very odd one where you know it's not whole. Some in some instances there are whole swaths, but in a number of instances it's very individualized effects. So the uh, impact on the yield should be limited. We're still trying to assess the overall uh, impact. Uh, and we're trying to assess by varietal as well. Um, so it's, it's still a question mark, but it's, there's definitely going to be less than last year. And from what I understand, the harvest last year um, was particularly good so that there might be, you know, some wiggle room, some cushion for a lot of winemakers? Yeah, we had over 80,000 tons of grapes last year, which was a, a, a a large crop, and it was a good crop. Uh, so uh, people were trying to find any anywhere and everywhere that they could store the store the juice. Uh, so we actually uh, have uh, lots of lots of wine from last year that will be able to fill the gap uh, for this year. Does that mean that so uh, you'll it... still be able to get the wine that you want? Um, so that won't be a problem. Aaron, frankly, I want all the wine. Uh, <laughs> but is that going to have a, a moderating uh, impact on uh, any potential price impact? Um, it, we are still trying to assess that as well. So the LCBO has announced some uh, increases for uh, imports for the transportation costs. But we're still not clear how much of that is going to be on the shelf. Uh, and because a lot of our competitors around the world are heavily subsidized, and we're not sure how much of that subsidy may go towards just offsetting those increased transportation costs. And, you know, all of your listeners, you know, when you walk down the LCBO, LCBO aisle, you know, we compete against the world in our own backyard, and we have to remain price competitive with that competition. Uh, you know, we, we love all of our customers, but, you know, People, people, especially these days, are keeping a very close eye on their pocketbook, and we have to remain price competitive. Well, I, I had heard that um, people should be prepared 
to pay more for international wines because of uh, things like um, transportation costs and, and the like, that there was going to be a bit of a price hike there coming down the pike pretty soon. Yeah. Um, so the, the prices have gone up for everybody. So like our our transportation costs here so are, are up around 30%. Uh, just the cost of glass for us is up huge. Uh, it's a challenge just to get glass for the bottles. Um, so that's a big challenge for us right now. And prices have gone through the roof. Um, but like I said, you know, the European Union gives almost $2 billion a year in subsidies to their wine industry. Uh, and, you know, some of that shows up in their ability to keep their prices down in at the LCBO. Um, the, you know, we are in a heat wave right now. There are indications that uh, summers will likely have more heat waves and for longer duration. What does this mean for, uh, for the wine industry in this province? That's a million-dollar question. Uh, you know, like folks right now are in Niagara at the I4C uh, conference, so it's a cool climate for Chardonnay. Uh, you know, we are able to grow uh, some of the world's best wines because of our current climate. So what is the climate going to be in 10, 15, 20 years? And how is that going to impact what we're able to grow? Uh, and, and honestly, what our competitors in Australia and California are able to grow as well. So it's going to be a very, very dynamic time uh, because of climate change. Exactly. I mean, I know right now, from what I've always heard, is that uh, grapes or, or vines like dry feet. Yeah. And we certainly have that this year. Yeah. And so, but the challenge for us, particularly climate change, is it's, it's the really hot summer days uh, can be beneficial. But with climate change, we're also seeing around the world, like we're seeing frosts and hail uh, and cold snaps. Uh, where we haven't seen them before, or certainly not with the regularity uh, that we've that we've ever seen before. So that's a it's not just a hot hot summer day. It's also the the frost in April and the hail um, in mid June. Well, one of the things I've also been noticing, um, Ontario is known for its ice wine, particularly Niagara ice wine, very lucrative sector of the market. Um, and it seems like in the last several years, the prime harvest conditions have happened later and later, bringing with it yep. the, poten- the potential for more rot and loss and trying to find that sweet spot of, of minus eight to minus 12 for at least six hours. Um, that seems to be happening later and later. Yeah. Absolutely true. Um, it's it's a real challenge just to, you know, keep the birds off of those grapes until we can get them, uh, you know, pressed. Uh, because at the end of the day, at our heart, every winery, you know, we're all farmers. And we are subject to the vagaries of Mother Nature. Um, and it's a, you know, agriculture is a very challenging business. And you add in, you know, the the making marketing the selling of wine it's uh you know mother nature gives and mother nature takes away we're speaking with aaron dobbin who's president of the wine growers of ontario um overall how is this growing season going uh it looks like it's going to be a very good quality year uh from what i've been told by by my members um but the the big outstanding question is going to be how much damage there is out there 
As always, um, I suppose. But uh, lots of sunshine, high heat that usually increases the sugar content, doesn't it? Well, and hopefully it increases the number of folks coming out to the wineries to uh, enjoy, taste, and buy wine at the wineries. Well, if my drive home to Niagara is any indication on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, uh, a lot of people are headed to Niagara. There are always yeah. slowdowns on the highways. <laughs> so yeah, how... The, the, uh... The Queensway, it can be a, a, a non-entertaining trip uh, sometimes, but we really, we really, really, really appreciate the people who come out to the wine, to Ontario wine country and support uh, BQA. Well, you know, I mean, a tough drive. There's always a payoff once you get to the winery itself. Yes, yeah. And, uh, and once you get there, you know, it's, it's a wonderful time because you can go to one and then you can try another and, you know, enjoy enjoy uh enjoy yourself in a very safe healthy environment outside uh enjoying the beautiful spectacular views with a nice cool glass of wine how is pandemic recovery going for uh for the wineries across ontario things are still tough um the sales year over year are off about 10 percent uh and you know um our sales to restaurants is still at about 50% of pre-pandemic levels. Um, so it's, it's, it's still a very challenging business right now. Um, and we, we greatly appreciate everybody's support. Uh, but yeah, no, it's the, the coming out of COVID is still economically a real challenge for wineries. And Aaron, I have one more question for you. Mm-hmm. What are you drinking this weekend? <laughs> uh, I, I'm actually not drinking this weekend, uh, but if I, if I was, I would definitely have a very nice glass of Chardonnay. You know what? Chardonnay is what I have chilling in my fridge right now. Uh, that's perfect. That's <laughs> absolutely perfect. And I, I can't think of a better way to spend a nice uh, afternoon on the dock with a, a nice cool glass of Chardonnay or Riesling uh, straight from Ontario. Water on the water, wine on the dock. Uh, Aaron Aaron Dobbin is president of the Wine Growers of Ontario. Thank you so much for your time and uh, all the best for this growing season. We'll try to check in with you again soon. Thank you so much. Aaron Dobbin, president of the Wine Growers of Ontario. We've been talking about the impact of climate change on one of the premier industries in Ontario. That would be wine growing. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a late one for Ticat fans, and it didn't end the way they might have hoped. The BC Lions beating the Cats 17-12. Let's focus on one of the more positive aspects of the game. Dane Evans looking for the end zone. Touchdown, Tiger Cats! Stephen Dunbar Jr., his team-leading fourth touchdown of the year, and the Tiger Cats are right back in it. Yeah, but not for long. Uh, joining us now is Rick Zamprin, who's host of Good Morning Hamilton, as well as being CHML Sports Director and usually the host of the fifth quarter. But he had to be in early this morning for the morning show. And a fifth quarter that starts in the middle of the night, that's asking a bit much even of you. Very much so. 
Uh, so I'd like to begin by saying big props to Dave Woodard, who filled in in the wee hours of this morning hosting the fifth quarter, our postgame show, and did a phenomenal job. Uh, and I also applaud all the callers and tweeters and emailers as well, because there are true diehard die Ticats fans in the city, and they always come out in the fifth quarter, especially when uh, they're out in BC and it's late at night when the game starts and early in the morning when the game ends. So bravo all around. And while they are fans, they are honest. They are brutally honest, yes, and they were last night. Although, I'll give them some high fives for remaining positive because there were a lot of positives from the game despite the loss. Because let's not forget, BC was on its bye week. And they're playing at home, so they're well-rested and waiting for any and all opponents, which just happened to be the Ticats this time. Hamilton last played Saturday, so really only had two practices to prepare for this game and get their game plan in order, their schemes for uh, Nathan Rourke and the BC Lions, and to travel three time zones away on a short week against a well-rested opponent who's playing some good football. At least it wasn't a blowout. I think that's what Ticats fans are looking at, that we were very competitive and nearly at the end actually had a couple of chances to win the game. Just couldn't do it. Yeah, it was uh, only five points uh, separating mm-hmm. them. Is that closer than you thought it was going to be? Definitely, yes. Considering all the things I just kind of identified, the the dominoes were stacked against the Ticats. It was, as I said, a short week. There's not a lot of time to prepare. They just had a very physical game against Ottawa on the Saturday. And BC's coming off the bye and licking their chops. And, you know, whether it was Toronto or uh, Montreal or Hamilton or Ottawa going to BC, it would have been a tough game for any of those teams. It usually is for those Eastern teams. But to do it on a such a short week, I, I was mentioning to head coach Rolando Steinauer, like the CFL schedule makers did not do them any favors with this part of the schedule. It's going to get more interesting in the next six weeks for the Ticats schedule-wise. But, yeah, that one, they left Hamilton shorthanded. But, you know what, uh, awesome job by the Ticats to, you know, considering everything that they have to had to deal with, uh, losing four out of their first five going into this game with all that against them, they showed well. And and it was a low-scoring game. Yeah, the defenses, I thought, for both teams played well. Um, you know, the Ticats had a couple of interceptions from Mork, who has been very steady this season, maybe an early favorite for most outstanding player. And that's saying a lot for a Canadian quarterback in his first full season in the league. Um, at the end of the day, yeah, the defenses kind of took over the ball game. Offenses had their chances. The Ticats twice with... You know, under two minutes to go, had a chance to get it in. Uh, just can't find that gear for whatever reason. They make they make some big plays here and there, but when the chips are down, it's only been really one game, and that was the last win, or the only win, that they were able to convert on a, a uh, obviously a clear opportunity to get in the end zone. As you alluded to a couple of minutes ago, um, the next six games... Mm-hmm. Different setup entirely. <laughs> What's the next phase going to be? Yeah, and you know, at the start of the season, I was looking at this stretch and thinking this is going to be the make-or-break part of the schedule, and it is the make-or-break part of the schedule because they have Montreal next on July 28th, and then they have Toronto back-to-back, and then they play Montreal again, and then they have the Argos back-to-back again. Uh, ultimately, that last game is on Labor Day. So by Labor Day, after these six games, we should have a really good idea of where the Ticats stand. I don't think they're going to win all six, 
they better not lose all six because the season <laughs> will be over. But this this is it. I mean, after this clump of games, they don't play the Argos again. Um, they end the season with back-to-back against Ottawa. But, yeah, this is the two teams that are ahead of them right now in the standings by just two points. As, as bad as Hamilton's record looks, Toronto's only 2-2. Two and two. Montreal only has a couple of wins as well. So the division is there for the taking. The, the question is... It's only going to be the top two teams in this division that make the playoffs because the East is so bad in comparison to the West. We're going to have another crossover, whether that's BC or maybe Saskatchewan, who knows. Uh, at the end of the day, this this next month, two months, really is going to be is going to determine whether this team is a playoff team or not. So they just have to claw past one of them. At the end of the day, yeah, yeah, because I, you know, as good as Ottawa has played, they're 0-6. They just can't find that gear to get a win. And with their star quarterback, Jeremiah Masoli, not being in the lineup, it's going to be hard-pressed for Ottawa to make the playoffs. They have a a, a bigger hill to climb, not only points-wise, but obviously personnel-wise. So the Ticats just have to beat out one of the other teams, whether that's Toronto or Montreal. My guess is... It'll be Montreal that they beat out. Toronto, I think, is a much more talented team than uh, the Alouettes, even though Montreal played very well last night, as, as did Ottawa, too. But, yeah, at least finish in second. You're in the dance, and as we have seen in playoffs in years gone by, anything could happen come playoff time. So just get in. Stopping by on the Bill Kelly Show is CHML Sports Director Rick Zamperin. Um, what about the um, uh, touchdown Atlantic, the aftermath of that? It, it, I, I saw the video. It looked brutal. Yeah, so there were a couple of instances where an Argonauts player and a Saskatchewan player got into it, we'll say. So uh, Duke Williams of the Saskatchewan Roughriders at one point grabbed the helmet from an Argos player, Shaq Richardson, and threw said helmet at the Argonauts player. Uh, And they were going at it basically all game long, pushing, shoving. Um, There's a player on Toronto uh, who is accused of spitting in the face of Duke Williams. And so each individual has received a one-game suspension. Uh, I think that's really light in terms of penalties. You know, you spit in someone's face in the general public, you're going to be charged with assault. On a Canadian football field, not so much. You You miss a game check, basically. And to use a helmet as a weapon is never a good thing. So I thought one was extremely soft. But this is the same league that suspended Garrett Marino for only four games for not only taking out a franchise quarterback with a low and legal hit, but then celebrating afterwards. So the league's got to get its priorities straight right now in terms of suspensions. They're not up to snuff. Well, when you compare it with what happens in the NFL, this seems even more trivial. Yeah, I mean, in the NFL, this is probably, oh, I'm going to say three years ago, pre-pandemic for sure, where the Pittsburgh Steelers are playing the Cleveland Browns and Pittsburgh's quarterback gets, I think he was sacked on the play, and then things were said and the Cleveland player um, grabbed the helmet of the Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback uh, and then tried to hit him with it and thankfully didn't connect, or at least not as he intended to do so. That individual, who's one of the best players in the league in Miles Garrett of Cleveland, got suspended six games for basically using a helmet as a weapon, and the CFL hands out a one-game suspension. So the math is clearly not the same in the NFL as the CFL. I applaud the NFL for doing what they do. The CFL has to grow some ice cubes and start laying down the law. Well, and as you said, in this situation in the NFL, he didn't connect. Yeah. But in this situation in the CFL, it did. And he got only one game. I don't understand it. I don't know. 
It comes down, and I know every time a player is suspended, no matter what the case is, aside from the Marino case, which was really clear-cut, that the Players Association was in no way going to appeal that. Because if they did, they're not only condoning the hit, they're condoning the actions of Garrett Marino afterwards, and Richie's celebrating after being ejected from the game. The Players Association, 99 times out of 100, is going to appeal on behalf of the offending player. The other part of the equation is there's a guy who's injured. The Players Association also represents that individual. So, yeah, you know, the league and the PA has to do a better job of, I think, increasing the penalties. I know the CFL is not a multi-bazillion dollar industry like the NFL. And if a player does get suspended, they're losing a paycheck, which is substantial given, you know, they don't make as much as NFL players. But at the end of the day, they have to protect the players who are getting hurt as well. Well, and is this something that the owner should be doing more about? It should be a conversation at the Board of Governors, absolutely, because these guys are the product. And if they're getting assaulted, basically, at the end of the day, whether it's helmet throwing or spitting in, in, in an individual's face, A, it looks bad for the game. You know, that's not the kind of publicity you want for the Canadian Football League, especially for kids watching. Um, and the league coming out saying this is a one-game penalty, I think, sends the message that they don't take it seriously enough or don't want to send a message to say, well, this, this, we don't condone this kind of action in our, in our game. And right now, I think they are. And that's sad. Well, you know, there is a, a disconnect between what they say and what they do. Here's the quote from CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrose. Uh, Ambrosi, rather. Such pregame hostilities are unacceptable, and the use of the helmet as a weapon is especially dangerous. Neither is to be tolerated. Yeah. Thanks, Commissioner. <laughs> but, okay. I mean, that's... And he has to say that. There's no doubt about it, because that is not tolerated at all. But at the end of the day, to only hand out a one-game suspension, it means it wasn't a serious enough fine to warrant anything more serious than one game out of 18. That's just not enough. Yeah. Not to be tolerated one game. Yeah. it's a That's a level of tolerance. Obviously, yeah. yeah. That To me, you know, if I'm the commissioner and I know, you know, he's got big shoes to fill. There's a lot of, you know, balls that he's kind of juggling. It's not an easy job. But I think that's an automatic two. I mean, at the very least, if you are grabbing someone's helmet, throwing it at an individual... Um, trying to injure, hurt the, the other player, that's that's a line that can't be crossed. Yeah. Uh, there's something else I wanted to talk to you about. There's a bit of a schedule change this weekend for two of the oh, teams. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so the Argos and Saskatchewan were supposed to have that touchdown Atlantic rematch tomorrow, but um, COVID has struck the Rough Riders so much so that they have 16 players and staff on the COVID list. So, um, yeah, so the CFL and the Rough Riders and the Argonauts kind of came together to say, okay, what are we going to do? Now, apparently the situation in Saskatchewan is one of improvement. They're saying guys are getting healthy. They're not testing positive anymore. So that's great. But they have rescheduled that game for Sunday. So anyone who's looking at their TV, the guide, you know, you hook up the menu and you're uh, trying to figure out where's the Argos Saskatchewan game on TV, it's not on Saturday. It's been moved to Sunday. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to and make go sure Rough Riders. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, come on. We don't want the Argos to win. We got to catch those guys. Okay, okay. From that perspective, yeah. yeah. But they are putting the rough in Rough Rider. Well, yeah, they certainly are doing that. <laughs> I've been doing that. Rick, thanks as always for you your got, insight. Anytime. CHML Sports Director Rick Zamprin. Uh, we're talking about yeah, the Tiger Cats. They can do it. Believe they can. That's step number one. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
More information's come out in recent days about the third-party investigation of Jerry Dias. During his time as president of Unifor, one of the largest unions in this country, with over 300,000 members. It's detailed in an investigative piece in the Toronto Star. Uh, one of the reporters on this story is uh, joining us now. I believe she's on the line with us. Uh, Rosa Saba, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Uh, So many of the things that are detailed in this story mirror what we've heard over and over again, the subject of an investigation, trying to block it, intimidation of whistleblowers, never mind the initial alleged wrongdoing. Um, and, And that's really what your story reveals about this situation as well. Yeah, so one of one of the new things that we got uh, through this investigation was, of course, the fact that it looks like Jerry Diaz, Jerry Diaz, sorry, tried to to actually impede the investigation. That's that's alleged in the report and in the minutes of of the National Executive Board meeting. So that wasn't something we knew before, and there were some really interesting details there about sort of what transpired before the investigation became public knowledge. Well, let's give people a bit of a recap in case uh, you know there's so many twists and turns and so many layers to this, they may not have remembered what the initial allegation was all about. Yeah, so it was a very, a very interesting time. Uh, obviously, Jerry Diaz, president of Unifor, the largest private sector union in Canada, he was set to retire uh, this year. In, in August, he was going to be replaced, uh, but he actually called early retirement just a couple of days before we found out there was an investigation. So originally it was medical leave, um, but we then found out that he was under investigation by a third party firm for an alleged kickback from uh, a third party supplier of COVID tests that he allegedly uh, promoted to uniform employers who subsequently bought the tests. So it's a $50,000 alleged kickback. And the investigation is basically into into that kickback, who was involved and, and everything sort of snowballed from there of course complicating it is the fact that he he has announced early retirement and now there's this very contested election coming up in august to replace him um bearing in mind nobody else has ever led unifor he's been the president ever since it was created so it all makes for a very very interesting and political situation yes absolutely it does and the alleged amount of money involved as you said was about fifty thousand dollars but half that money was (laughs) was <laughs> allegedly offered to someone else and mm-hmm. and now that money has been turned over to police so it lends more credibility to the allegations that there was in fact a kickback Yes, well, that's the reason we have the investigation, actually. So the whistleblower is Chris McDonald, who was an assistant of, of Jerry's. And what what the report details, or at least the summary findings that we were able to, to read, you know, that basically McDonald was involved in promoting that third-party supplier to employers, although he says that, you know, he made it clear he didn't want any sort of compensation for that. But nevertheless, um, he says that Jerry gave him $25,000 in cash and he ended up filing a formal complaint. And that's how the investigation uh, by a third party hired by Unifor began. So he's, he's the reason that $25,000 is the reason that uh, we're, we're talking today. Absolutely. And there are also some other things. Something about um, giving McDonald this money to buy a boat? <laughs> I think that was a comment, a comment that was made. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, Jerry's been, again, he's been the president of, uh, of Unifor for quite a while. He's got great relationships with his people. So it's it's hard to, to sort of understand exactly what it was. But what we've, what we've been told and what we've read is that the president sort of 
pressured McDonald to, to keep those funds, to keep the $25,000 and, and made a comment about how he could, he could use it to buy Jerry's boat. Um, that's in the summary findings of the investigation. So an interesting tidbit into sort of the, the conversations that went on between Jerry and his assistant uh, while this money was exchanging hands. Well, and also if this proves it to all be valid, that means that money goes back to Jerry and he sells a boat. It would have, yes, but I I think he still has his boat. I think he does. Uh, This also raises (laughs) questions about the accountability and governance of Unifor. And, you know, we we keep hearing about all of this in relation to other scandals. And the first one that comes to mind is Hockey Canada. Mm hmm. That's obviously something that's that's unfolding right now uh, relating to sexual assault. So we are talking about something a bit different here. Uh, but, you know, one thing that, that has come up, because obviously one of our first questions when we found out about this was, is this the first time uh, one one member of the executive of Unifor actually said this in one of the meetings? Nobody goes from zero to 50,000, you know, just like that. Right. And And it's a fair it's a fair question. Everyone's asking it. Um, according to the investigation by the third-party firm, there's no evidence of uh, of previous wrongdoing, and of course, we also know that that Jerry is is going is going through something. So, you know, we do have some details on issues, recent issues with substance abuse, abuse uh, with sciatica and that kind of thing. And so, there is kind of this this narrative right now that, that this is a one-time thing, that it's out of character. Um, and so far, no evidence to the contrary has has surfaced. Well, and also uh, your article details that in 2019, there was another situation that actually shows that there was a different presence of mind at that time. Yeah, so that's, I mean, I, I will, that, that's obviously a story recounted by someone else. But another one of his assistants, uh, Katha Fortier, described this in the meeting minutes. So she described in 2019, a basket of designer items, I believe there was some Hermes in there, if I remember correctly. Um, and, you know, she said that Jerry said to her, who do they think that I am that I would take this? In September 2019, Jerry clearly knew the line. And she said, you know, Diaz told her that the gifts would be returned by his support staff. So that was that was her, you know, basically describing des- describing him and, and trying to illustrate that this really was out of character and that this was not the Jerry Diaz who she knew. Yeah. Um, what is going to happen with this third party investigation? Well, the entire investigation is supposed to be released to to all of the locals uh, who can then, you know, disseminate it among the 315,000 uh, workers who who are represented by Unifor, the Toronto Star include, uh, included. So far, all those me- meeting minutes and the summary findings of the of the report, those are the documents we we relied upon for this story. Those have already been sent to the locals. We've been assured that the full report is going to be sent out, but it hasn't been yet. So you know, eventually we'll see it. But we've seen the summary findings. We kind of we know we know we know the broad strokes and a lot of the sordid details. Um, you know, there's a few questions still remaining. So, for example, in the summary findings, we were reading uh, the name of the company, the the test supplier. You know, that's blacked out. Um, so we don't really have any information to share right now on, on who that company is, although I think a lot of people are wondering. So there's a lot of unanswered questions, a lot of, you know, threads to pull for us as, as journalists. But I'm looking forward to seeing the full report for sure. Yeah. And, and you mentioned something in there that I, I found kind of interesting, which was, I mean, all of this was going to come out at some point because the Toronto Star and other news organizations are a part of Unifor. They're not going mm-hmm. to ignore this. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I- exactly. I mean, Unifor represents not only us, but the, the Globe and Mail as well. They represent a, uh, a lot of uh, media outlets. And so, you know, we had these documents before they were sent to locals, but they have been sent to locals. Those have been sent out. In fact, I think at least one of them has already posted them on their website. So, so these are out there. Anyone can can read these minutes now. Um, and then, of course, the report once it's sent out. So, it's just a lot. Sixteen hundred pages. Not everyone's gonna gonna comb through that, and it's our job as journalists to to go through and and pick out sort of the really the really important stuff and relay it to everyone. Now, has there been any reaction from the union locals yet? From the locals, no. I mean, again, like I said, uh, they've all received the minutes. I think they're probably digesting. At least one has has posted them online for everyone to see. But what's going on right now is that Unifor is leading up to an election. And this is this is all all part of of the alleged kickback scandal, of course, um, because, you know, Jerry was going to retire regardless. And there is kind of this this tradition in Unifor and in many other organizations of the executive board endorsing a candidate. Um, And somebody was endorsed, actually, Scott Doherty, another uh, former assistant to to Jerry Diaz. He was endorsed at the last executive board meeting that Jerry ever went to. That was in February, the very beginning of February. At that time, Jerry Diaz and a few other people knew he was under investigation, but the executive board did not. They took his recommendation. They voted to endorse Scott Doherty. And now, of course, that looks a lot different than it did back then. So Scott has given up that um, that endorsement. You've got Dave Cassidy running from another union. And then in the midst of all of this, the national secretary treasurer, Lana Payne, in April decided to run as well, which has been a very contentious decision. So I think right now the locals are really sort of trying to figure out what all this new information means in the context of this election, where they have to send delegates who are going to vote on the next president. It's a lot to take in, and I I can't imagine the sort of confusion that's going on right now. That's a lot to take in and in a very short period of time before this election comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see. I can't imagine it, but I, I can because I do work at a, at a Unipor, uh, you know, workplace, obviously. Yeah. But. We're speaking with Rosa Saba, business reporter for the Toronto Star and part of the investigative team following the allegations of kickbacks involving uh, Jerry Diaz in the story as well. Um, And part of the allegations, uh, not just the $50,000 and where all that went and what's going on with that, but, you know, you also detail the pressuring of the whistleblower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was another thing, again, that, that we didn't have before these minutes came out that was really interesting. So again, just to recap, the whistleblower is uh, is Chris McDonald, who was one of Jerry's assistant. And essentially, the investigation report says that, you know, once Diaz, Diaz sorry, realized that McDonald had filed a complaint, he exerted pressure on him to try and get him to to drop it, you know. Um, there, there were, you know, calls, text messages, 3.30 in the morning, um, you know, there was, there was even this, this detail where he apparently texted him a photo of his wife and said, don't take her away from me. I mean, you know, the, the report really paints a picture of a man who, who's really trying to, you know, to get this complaint 
dropped. Um, and the report also also claims that others on Jerry's team, you know, participated in, in that pressure, although it's it's a bit contested as, as to what degree. But yeah, that was one of the major revelations from, from these documents, for sure. Well, one of the paragraphs that really jumped out when I was reading the story, uh, the meeting minutes include new details about an alleged scandal that involved engraved bottles of cologne, wads of cash, and investigators examining whether Dias exerted relentless pressure to quash a formal inquiry and maybe get his assistant to buy his boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the details in one paragraph. It's not easy, but I, I think we, <laughs> I think we nailed it. Yeah, the cologne is an interesting one. So we don't. Again, we don't have the names of, of the people associated with the rapid test supplier, but you know, there's person A and person B who apparently gave uh, three bottles of, of engraved cologne, um, one of them intended for McDonald's, um, you know, to die as to give to McDonald's. So that's another thing that was actually turned over to the police with the $25,000 that was given to, to Chris McDonald. Definitely interesting, you know, really paints an interesting, interesting picture. Well, and your article also really pulls the veil back on some of the inner workings at the uppermost ranks of Unifor and, uh, and how they were trying to deal with all of this. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it was a really, really confusing time for all. I mentioned that one, one of the really big, big points that I think uh, has come up over and over again at these national executive board meetings is the fact that, you know, Jerry arrived knowing full while he was under investigation and, and you know, convinced everyone to endorse his assistant, you know, before before going on medical leave. And, and of course, a lot of people uh, who voted on that motion now are saying we didn't have the full picture. Um, you know, they're they're not they're not feeling great about that. But there's also, you know, not everyone thinks there should have been an investigation. Not everyone thinks the investigation should have been made public. You know, there's a lot of talk about how to deal with it. There's this extra wrinkle where, according to the Unifor Constitution, Jerry's early retirement should have actually triggered an earlier vote. Um, which the National Executive Board did decide to cancel because the August convention was coming up. That's something that's very contentious as well and something that in specific Lana Payne has come, come under a lot of fire for from other members of the executive. So there's really this this picture of, of division at, uh, you know, among among the leadership. Um, a lot of them, you know, they're they're very they're very frank about that, about the fact that, you know, things are things are pretty difficult there and people are divided, you know, different people support different candidates. And uh, when you read the minutes, you can really you can really see that division and that frustration among among the leaders of Unifor. But again, it kind of surprised me that. I mean, it didn't, it didn't, that there there was an attempt to try to keep this as quiet as possible. Jerry Dias is one of the most recognizable people in labor in Canada, period. Um, so any allegation involving him is, is going to be big news. And also, again, reporters are part of this union. It's not like you're going to be able to keep a lid on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, to be clear, obviously, my role as a as a member of Unifor and my role as a as a journalist, I keep those those very separate. But for sure, I mean, like this kind of thing, it's 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 pretty hard to keep a lid on it forever. One of the other things that came up in the report that I thought was really interesting was that uh, according you know according to to Lana Payne in the minutes, uh, Jerry's team actually sought a mediated settlement 
uh, you know, with Unifor, of course, that proposed a restriction on information released to the public by Unifor. Um, she made it pretty clear that, that she thought that was unacceptable, that, you know, she, she basically felt that that would amount to a cover-up. And so that did not happen. But there was apparently, uh, you know, an effort to kind of keep it on the down low and just let him retire quietly. Uh, you know, it makes you wonder how this election is going to pan out because you've got a lot of, of contention, contentious uh, uh, back and forth going on, um, a lot of allegations going back and forth and what people's motivations are. This is shaping up to be one of the nastiest labor elections that I can think of. A hundred percent. I mean, <laughs> you know, this is among all all elections. You know, I've covered municipal, provincial, federal, but this is the this is the one that I'm the most interested in right now. It's coming up in August, and I mean, I'm fascinated as a as a journalist to see what happens between now and then, and and I'm fascinated to see what happens at the election. Uh, it's it's huge. Again, this is the largest private sector union in Canada. It represents more than three hundred thousand workers. And uh, it's it's a big deal. You know, there's a lot of questions over over this election, this whole scandal and and what it means, not just for Unifor, but frankly, for the labor movement itself. Well, again, the the short and long term of it is, first off, how is Unifor going to kind of rebuild its reputation after all of this? What are they still going to do about this situation, which is still percolating and ongoing? And how is Unifor and labor going to move forward? Mm-hmm. I mean, Unifor and, and, and its leaders are, are very aware of, you know, the issue that this causes, you know, for, for their image, for, for the trust of their members and of the public. And again, this is another thing that comes up in the minutes is people saying we're going to have to rebuild trust. And so I, I do think that that's one of, one of the reasons they're going ahead with this transparency approach, right? You know, releasing all of these minutes of, of these executive board meetings, eventually releasing the full report to all of their members, which is, you know, essentially the public. I mean, they really are trying to show that they're being transparent, that they too were were sort of taken aback and that they're doing everything within their power to make sure this doesn't happen. I know they've also promised, you know, like a task force, for example, to kind of look at uh, some of the issues that might have allowed this to happen. You know, they're, they're going to be answering questions for a long time, and, and that's really going to be crucial to to their image and to rebuilding that trust. Is there any chance that this uh, report in its entirety is going to come out before this election next month? Um, a hundred percent. I mean, again, they. I don't know if you if you caught this, but actually, a couple of weeks ago, we were expecting it already to come out. So we found out that the the board had decided to release the report and the minutes, and we thought it could happen at any moment. Uh, we wrote a story saying it was it was going to happen, and then we waited, and, and it just didn't happen yet. Eventually, we got the minutes and the summary findings, but, you know, I am thinking that this report is going to have to come out before. I, I don't think that people would be very happy with the prospect of, of voting in this very, very important election for Unifor without all of the information at hand. And while right now we we have a lot of it, you know, I think that they're going to want full transparency. So I personally would be surprised if, if the report isn't sent out before the election. Um, never say never, but, you know, that's we're certainly going to be keeping tabs on that and, and when it comes out. I kind of had the feeling you might. 
<laughs> it's kind of my job. Exactly. Uh, Rosa Saba is a business reporter for the Toronto Star, part of the investigative team that has been following not only the allegations of uh, kickbacks involving uh, Jerry Diaz, the allegations of that, nothing's been proven in court yet, but really how all of this is filtering down and, and what it's going to mean uh, for Unifor and also for labor as well. Rosa, again, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.